Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Amen. Miss Marilyn, it's good to see you. I just want to welcome you here today. I know this is your first time in this building, and man, we're excited to see you. So glad Miss Cheryl could have you. Won't y'all welcome Miss Marilyn back? Thank you. Just say, we love you, darling. We, we love you. You know, have you ever felt beaten by the world? Have you ever felt like your spirit had been stripped and left bare to the harsh elements? Have you ever felt that no one cares about your future? Well, I have been there. I was the one lying on the side of the road as many passed by. They continued on and unconcerned and unaware of my need. But today I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the one who did stop and reach out. I'm grateful for the one who took the time to bring comfort to my wounds Thankful for the one who supported me when I could not stand on my own. I'm grateful for the one who cared enough to see hope in my future. You see, I can share this story with you because the one, the one who became my neighbor and extended the love of God to me signed the traveler. Those words by an anonymous poet capture the heart of someone who's experienced being loved by their neighbor. If you know the Bible at all, you would know that it's really a reflection from the parable of the Good Samaritan. You see, what I believe is in order for us to reach the Grange, that means that every person who's a committed follower of Jesus here at First Baptist Church is going to have to become a neighbor and reach those around them with the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is my hope and it is my desire that really we become the one that reaches those on the other side of the road. So some people say, shouldn't we really be all about the Great Commission and making disciples? Yes, because Matthew 28, 19, and 20 say these words. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Absolutely, we should be about the Great Commission. But I wonder, really, where do we start with that, and with whom do we start? So I'm going to take you to a familiar passage. We've been kind of going over week after week here. But there's another place in another gospel entitled the Gospel of Luke that I want us to go to today. Going to be in Luke chapter 10 this morning in verses 25 through 37. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. I wonder if you would stand with me as we read from God's holy word. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 27. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, 
and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, well, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and they beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put, on him, put him on his own beast, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go. And do the same. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So again, where do we start? And with whom do we start with in this idea of the Great Commission? Well, we start with loving Jesus, and then out of the overflow, loving our neighbor. You see, in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29, it tells us that religious people are really good at trying to define the limits of love. Religious people are also very good at self-righteousness. So this lawyer, in an attempt to justify himself, asked the question, well, then who is my neighbor? Jesus then expands the idea of love and neighbor and turns the question around. Instead of asking, who is my neighbor? Jesus, in essence, says, rather, the question is not, who is your neighbor, but who was a neighbor? Or put differently, it's not about who is my neighbor, but really, who am I being a neighbor to? The Great Commission to go tell people about Jesus must begin with the Great Commandment. Truly living out, though, the Great Commandment leads to filling the Great Commission. The two are inseparable. So here we are in our series called This Is My First Baptist Church, and we've been looking at our mission, and starting next week, we'll begin to look at our vision. But so far, we've said this, that our, our mission here is this that FBC exists to embrace great commandment love. Oh, how he loves us. We want to embrace the love of God. And then that fuels the great commission living that we're supposed to be about. We've been focused so far upon loving God, and this morning we're going to switch to loving the neighbor part of the great commandment. One of my mentors, Dr. David Ferguson, says this. He says, Jesus carefully distinguished the compassion of the Samaritan from the insensitivity of the priest and the Levite. The person that Jesus committed was neither the religious official or the lay associate, but a foreigner who had demonstrated a love that knew no cultural boundaries. In some ways, the actions of the religious leaders in this parable foreshadowed the pervasive irrelevant that plagues much of our witness today. 
Christ's words reveal that the great commandment, that kind of love, is made manifest as we become good neighbors to those around us. It's this kind of radical, starting love for others that will draw them to consider a relationship with Jesus. It will be our unexpected love for the unlovable that will point a lost world to the one that loves them. The story of the Good Samaritan affirms the necessity, listen to me, it affirms the necessity of a relational argument for the faith. As neighbors, we must learn to live out a relational apologetic that reflects both great commandment love and great commission passion. If I want my children, your children, our families, our friends, and our coworkers to come to Jesus as Justin prayed, If we want that to happen, we have to look to Jesus. How did he go about the Great Commission? How did Jesus do this? How did Jesus present the gospel? How did he reveal himself to people? You see, did Jesus only go to the Jews and and say, hey, here are some rational arguments as to why you should believe in the Messiah? No. Did he depend upon performances and productions to bring people to the knowledge that he was the Messiah? Well, we know, of course not. Did he focus his time on debating political leaders and the religious elite in order to disprove their theories and hope somehow to shed light of the truth about their misguided philosophies? No. Well, then how did he do it? He gave his life and the gospel. You see, Jesus didn't just impart the truth of the gospel. He imparted his life also. He lived out the truths he was speaking with his mouth with his life. He didn't simply offer just some some truths and some arguments about the faith. He did that, but then he modeled everything he was teaching through his character and through his, his faith in his father. People became convinced. Listen to me. People became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah as they witnessed his tears over his friend Lazarus. Jesus, people became convinced that he was the Messiah through his acceptance of an outcast for his compassion on those who were sick when he came upon them. Others were drawn to the Messiah by his supportive presence and unconventional demonstrations of love. Jesus didn't merely present a rational or just propositional, just fact-based apologetic for what he believed. He just didn't give the facts, or he just didn't simply give the truth. He lived out a relational truth that says, yes, this is true, but you're going to know it's true also by the way that I love you. You see, Paul picked up on this as an apostle and a disciple of Jesus. The, The other apostles had taught Paul very well when he was with them and when he was learning about the faith. So Paul writes to the church in 1 Thessalonians, in the 1 Thessalonians, he says this in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, having so fond an affection for you. Do you hear that? We were well pleased to impart you not only the gospel, but also our own lives because you had become so dear to us. It's not just the gospel. It is the gospel. It has to be the gospel. But it's also got to be our lives. Paul seemed to be saying, share the written word, the the gospel, along with the living word, your life. The two make a powerful combination. Such a relational approach to the gospel is even more important in this postmodern culture. This culture that we are living in needs a relational witness more than ever before. You know why? Because in this postmodern culture, what the idea is is that there is no truth. 
So you, you listen, if you struggle with what I'm about to share, I want you to know that I love you. I'm just using this by way of illustration. But in our postmodern culture, there is no truth. So to start with truth, you absolutely will not get anywhere. You have to start with love. And let me tell you something. Listen, in this postmodern culture, they say, I can make up my own truth. You know how I know this? Because I can determine what gender I am. I don't need biology and the facts of any truth to tell me. I get to choose what my own truth is. And and it's not really even truth. It's just what I choose. And it goes against all truth that any of us have ever known. This is what I'm trying to tell you. This is a part of the world that we're in. This is a part of the culture that we're in. This is why I'm trying to lead us to make a difference that's culturally appropriate. This is why it's so hard for us who are stuck in the 80s and some of us are stuck in the 70s. This is why it's so hard to adjust because we're having to learn how to give truth differently. We're still giving the truth, but we've got to learn to do it differently. We've got to change the package that it's in. We can never change what's inside the package, though, amen? Okay, do you hear me? Do you understand what I'm saying? So we have to impart our lives along with the gospel. And so when I'm imparting my life and when I'm really being a neighbor, this is what this begins to look like. So then what does it mean, Jesus, to really be a neighbor? I mean, who was the neighbor? Is there anything I can learn from this parable, Jesus, about what it means to, to live and love with my neighbor? Well, sure, the text I believe that we read there in Luke chapter 10 tells us a couple of things. First, it tells us this. Loving my neighbor means I must have godly sight. Loving my neighbor must, means that I must have godly sight. You see, in Luke chapter 10, verse 30, it tells us that this man was a victim of theft and he was barely clothed. He was humiliated, he was shamed, and he was wounded. Then a few people see this man, and one of them is a priest, and one of them is a Levite. The text tells me that they saw and looked, but they must not have seen correctly. Jesus makes a point to show that the Samaritan saw something different, and he saw something differently. He saw a person. He saw an image bearer. He saw somebody who needed help. Jesus makes sure that we know that this man is a Samaritan, and it's incredibly important that he points this out. You see, back in 722 BC, Assyria defeated the northern kingdom of Israel and sent them into exile. They deported 20,000 Hebrews. They deported them and took them out, and they took some foreigners and put them in their place. So now you had Hebrews that were gone and foreigners took their place. And this led to intermarriage between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews who were there began to see that these Jews had intermarried with other people and they began to despise the children of these mixed marriages. There arose such a problem and animosity between the Samaritans, these mixed half-breeds, and the true Jews that the Samaritans go to form their own religion and build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Now you understand what the woman was talking about in John chapter 4. We see on this mountain that we have the worship, and I won't go there, but that gives you some background. You see, the point of this is that the information helps me to understand that the Samaritan could have saw through his natural fleshly eyes, but he didn't. I mean, he could have saw someone who hated him. 
He could have saw someone who says, hey, I know how you people treat me. I know how you people choose to overlook, and and I know what it feels like to be overlooked, so I'm just going to overlook you. He could have seen someone finally getting what they deserve, but he didn't. He saw as Christ saw. He had godly sight. You see, the religious Levite and the priest only saw with their fleshly eyes, but the Samaritan sees with his heart, and he sees with the eyes of Jesus. Listen to me. I'm going to say this over and over as your pastor, but you have to understand this. Here's a statement I want you to get down. In order to love people the way Jesus loves people, typo. In order to love people the way Jesus loves people, I must first see people the way Jesus sees them. If I'm going to love people the way Jesus loved people, when I look, I've got to see something differently. I've got to see people differently. This Samaritan saw this man as an image bearer. Before his skin color, oh, God help us. Before their nationality, oh, God help us. Before what they look like in their sin, but before he even saw what this man had even done, before he saw his deeds, he saw his need. He saw him as somebody who, yes, was fallen and a sinner, but somebody who was so very alone. And Jesus sees us both as fallen and need of a Savior, but also alone and of someone to meet our relational needs. And this Samaritan sees with the eyes of Jesus. And listen, when I see with the eyes of Jesus, it moves me to love the people that now I see. So let me ask you this question, and this is just so politically incorrect. But when you look down at the border and you see people from other countries coming here, do you see them as illegals first? Or do you see them as people who are hurting and need the love of Jesus? You will never love people coming across our border the way Jesus loves them until you first see them the way Jesus sees them. What about the neighbor that lives across the street? How do you really see people? How do you really see them unless you see them as Jesus sees them? You cannot love them the way Jesus loves them. Loving my neighbor means I must have godly sight. But then secondly, loving my neighbor must, means I must have a growing sensitivity must have a growing sensitivity. In Luke chapter 10, verse 33, it says, but a Samaritan was on his journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. (laughs) The word compassion means to be moved from the innermost part of my being in that day, and I'm not trying to gross you out. I'm just trying to give you biblical history, so please understand. But in that day, to be moved with compassion, they considered the bowels the deepest innermost part of a person. So when it says they were moved with compassion, it literally translates they were moved from their bowels, from the deepest part of who they were. This Samaritan was moved deeply from within, full of compassion. When I see what Jesus sees, I move from the deepest part of who I am to love the other person like Jesus loves him because Jesus was often moved with compassion And then we see him loving people in crazy kind of ways. You see, he could have said to this man that was there on the road, he said, hey, you know, man, everybody knows that the road that you're traveling, the 17-mile long road, is is notoriously dangerous to, to, to travelers. You should have known better, first of all. 
And you know that this road that you're traveling on is called the road of blood. You know, you know that you go down 3,600 feet and it's got all these short little curves. And you know thieves and bandits hide there all the time. You knew that. You're stupid. What are you doing? But he didn't start there. See, I've got to have this growing sensitivity to what people are going through and where they're really at when I see them. Oftentimes, we want to give advice instead of affection. We're good. We, we as good Samaritans and neighbors, go about each day, and we have to ask for the Lord's vision and his discernment and his guidance, but we must also be convinced that the compassionate care of Christ in us is often more valuable than any advice we can give to people. Your eagerness to share words of advice or counsel others will often hurry you past the pain and their needs. Counsel may be appropriate, but I can tell you compassion is always appropriate. Following the example of Jesus, I must respond with care to people in pain, trusting them that the Holy Spirit will will get after their wrong behavior. There's only one Holy Spirit. He's on his throne, and he's not up for re-election, I can promise you. That is never going to go vacant. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts people of sin. Recall Jesus' acceptance of Zacchaeus before he even changed? The Holy Spirit did a great job of convicting Zacchaeus, but where did it start with Jesus' love? You and I must see people as God sees them, people in need of his saving and free and grace to be sure, yes, but also persons who are in pain, they're needy, they're alone, and they need a grace-filled relationship with God, but they also need a grace-filled relationship with you. You see, our sharing of truth may indeed be appropriate, but it always has to be in love. And can I share with you something else? Our truth also has to be free of condemnation. One who convicts of sin is the Holy Spirit, and he guards his job jealously, finding no need to share it with you and I. You see, we have to look for the pain and aloneness as we listen to the story of people around us. I have to grow in sensitivity. Make it your daily practice to be keenly alert to the stories and the pain and the struggles of people you encounter. And you will find that as you do that, people are usually going to go through three big picture ideas. Here's the first one. I have to be sensitive to people who are pain-filled. I'm going to find some people on the other side of the road who are pain-filled. They're suffering from obvious trauma. They're going through tragedy. They've experienced violence. They've they've been victims of sinful people. They've they've compromised on principles, and they're living this pain-filled life. Maybe they've experienced times of rejection. Maybe they're going through extreme loss, or maybe they're just simply discouraged. Maybe. Maybe they're even going through a tremendously time where they're rejoicing and things are going right, but they're doing it alone. See, we have to understand we have to be sensitive to people who are pain-filled like this man. But we also have to be sensitive to people who are preoccupied. We have to be sensitive to people who are preoccupied. They're, they're immersed in the endless activity and business trying to ignore their feelings. That's the Levite and the priest. Just preoccupied with good things but not the best things. Clearly avoiding their most important relationships, people who are preoccupied are just 
just constantly involved in important relationships, but not the ones with God and family or God's people. So we have to be sensitive to them. Thirdly, we have to be sensitive to people who are prodigals. I mean, they're escaping into substitutes such as drugs or alcohol. They, they escape into things like food or television or pornography or the Internet or work. Some people escape into church, just get busy in the church. They make self-focused decisions based on the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. They're compromising on their ethics, their morality, their values, their principles, and we have to see as Jesus sees, and we have to grow in sensitivity to where they're at and what may have been causing it, and then love them right where they're at. I've never yet seen anybody who would disagree with this statement. We all know you can't clean your life up and then come to Jesus. You do what? You come to Jesus, and he will clean your life up, right? Well, then why do we treat people like they've got to get it right before we love them? It didn't work for you. It's not going to work for them because that's not the Jesus that we find in the Bible. So I'm wondering, am I growing? Am I growing in sensitivity or am I just being insensitive? Loving my neighbor must mean I have godly sight. I've got to grow in sensitivity. The third thing is loving my neighbor means I must gratefully serve. I must gratefully serve. In verse 34, it says, he came to him bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Bible says the Samaritan went to him because Jesus has sent us, remember the Great Commission, as you're going. And where to go? And when he got to him, when he, when he saw somebody, he served him. You know why? Because he loved him. You know why? Because he saw him. And he bandaged his wounds. He serves his energy, his his. His injuries. He pours oil and wine and the way of cleaning and protecting the womb. And then he puts him on his own animal. He served his need of being immobile. Then he brought the man to an end and took care of him. He served him in his condition, met his needs, and took time out of his own schedule to put somebody else first. You see, this is why I'm telling you that embracing great commandment love then fuels you to be about great commission living. If you can see this, to be sent with the heart and mission of Jesus is to live as a servant, sharing his life and love, and yes, sharing his gospel. Serving others with sensitivity and initiative is a critical part of our being sent. Christ exemplified this when he noticed the many needs of hurting people around him, and he took initiative to meet those needs. The Bible says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. So loving my neighbor means I have godly sight, growing sensitivity, and I must greatly serve. And lastly, very quickly, loving my neighbor means I must generously sacrifice. Generously sacrifice. Verse 35, he says, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and whatever more you send, when I return, then I will repay you. And Jesus said, hey, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? The one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. I wonder today, the Samaritan gave two denarii, and maybe you need to understand a little bit about what that's about. A denarii was simply this. It was a full day's wages. He didn't just give this guy a tip. He didn't give, just give him gas money. He just didn't buy him a McDonald's hamburger. He gave two full day's wages. And then said, if there's anything else, 
I'll pay that too. Because you see, when I see what Jesus sees, I love how Jesus loves, and there's no limits to his love. I will sacrifice so that other people's needs can be met. I will sacrifice. I will give up whatever it is to make sure that they experience the love. You see, the Samaritan didn't have to do this. He could have just kept on walking just like the other people. Earlier in the text, we read about the priests and the Levites. And at that time, you need to understand, at that time in Jerusalem, there were so many priests, they could only serve for two weeks in the temple out of the year. So I'm a priest, and there's so many of us, I only get to serve for two weeks, and I have to wait next year to serve two more weeks. So it could be that that this priest, as he was walking, didn't want to risk missing his term of service by what? Not showing up to the temple when he was supposed to. Maybe he thought, you know what? I don't want to miss out on my two weeks in the temple, so I don't have time to meet this man. It's kind of like, you know what, on the way to church, I don't want to stop and help somebody because I got to get to church. Maybe this priest thought the man was dead, you know, because in Numbers 19.11, it says if, if a priest touched something that's dead, he has to go and go clean himself and he has to sit off on the side for seven days and quarantine. Well, dude, you know what? There's nobody as important as me making sure I'm where I'm supposed to be in the, in the temple. Well, the Levites, who's the other guy? Well, I mean, he led the religious worship and maintained the temple grounds and He may not have gotten involved for the same reasons. I don't know why he didn't get involved, but I can tell you this. He just didn't want to make the sacrifice. You see, I'm telling you, the religious people always want to justify themselves. We started there, right? He wanted to justify himself, so he said, hey, then who is my neighbor? And we do this all the time. We just don't want to get our hands dirty or pay the price, right? Because listen to me, and I'm not trying to to come down on you, and I'm not speaking about anybody in the room. I'm just telling you, here's what I've found in the body of Christ. You just mention the idea of adoption or foster care to people, and they're like, "Mm, we don't want to get involved in that. I mean, you just mention the idea about helping single moms or dads. Uh, I mean, I've kind of done my business. I don't want to raise anybody else's kids. You talk about ministering to the abused or mention just being helping, getting involved with trafficking that's going on. Or better, yeah, I mean, you just mentioned going down and loving people that are on our border. People want to go constitution on you. Let the government do what the government does. Let the church do what the church does. I'm just trying to tell you guys, Jesus said, who was the neighbor, the one who showed mercy? Go and do likewise. If we're going to give the gospel in our own lives, we must remember that sharing our life with another person requires a deep, costly commitment because this is the way of Christ. Embracing great commandment love fuels great commission living. In other words, worship fuels my witness. It's only as I impart his life and and love in spite of, in spite of others' faults and failures, will I give a witness that's actually believable. Only as I offer supportive involvement and caring concern and practical help will I give witness to a God who bears people's burdens. Only as I demonstrate compassion and comfort when others are hurting will I give witness to a Christ who is both equated with sorrows and grief and moved with compassion. 
You see, it can't be just about the truth. It's got to match Jesus' life too. The supernatural and sacrificial love of God demonstrated through his people will draw other people to Christ and will leave fruit that remains. This religious man came asking an important question. And can I tell you this? Say, religion will not move you. Love is what moves you. Can I say this to you? You will only be moved to love once you've been moved by love. Religious work doesn't mean we are right with God. The priests and Levites show us that. that They were being faithful to go do what God asked them to do at the church. Only by being in a loving relationship with God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit can we be made right. And as a result of being right with him, I will be right with people. So I'm telling you today, the answer for LaGrange is not found in religion. The answer for LaGrange is not found in our responsibilities. The answer for LaGrange is found in relationships. And it's found in relationships with God and relationships with people. We have to be willing to sacrifice to meet the needs of what life has stolen from others. I can only do that by first being loved and receiving Christ's love and salvation. Loving my neighbor means I have godly sight, I I grow in sensitivity, I gratefully serve, and I generously sacrifice. You see, our culture's gravest problems cannot be remedied by political, social, or economic means. We can throw more laws, we can throw more programs, and we can throw more money at these problems every year. But I tell you this, they continue to increase. The solution to the alienation and aloneness of the human heart can only be found in Jesus. As spirit-filled individuals establish and maintain intimate relationships with their creator, abundant life and meaningful relationships are the result with others. And Christ has entrusted that to you and me. God has called a hurting world to come to him, but he's called us to take him to them. So I wonder today, as good Samaritans, can you just think about a few practical things? I wonder today, would you be willing to leave your side of the road? your priorities and your preoccupations and become attentive students of where other people really are at? Would you begin to notice the surroundings and situations of others? Pay particular, particular attention to people's isolation and aloneness. I said it last week. I'm going to say it again. When you see somebody alone, it has to be an emergency. When Adam left Eve alone in the garden. All sin came into the world. When you leave people alone, they're more easily entangled in sin. And the wages of sin is death. We can't leave people alone. Can't. Caring inquiries were important. Ask people about their disappointments, about their fears. Initiate caring involvement. Be among the first to extend loving support to hurting people. Visit people, call people, send people notes that just say, I'm thinking about you. Reassure people's hopes and dreams by saying, hey, I'm looking forward to rejoicing with you as God blesses your future. Commit to travel through the disappointments and fears saying, hey, I'm committed to go through this with you. 
help lift the burden of the situation and struggle with practical help. Therefore, fulfilling the law of Christ that we bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Look for the unnoticed people around you at your workplace, at the gas station, in the grocery store. Look for people who other people aren't noticing and start a conversation of care with them. Ask them about the details of their lives. Offer to help people with their groceries. Offer to give somebody your seat wherever you're going. I mean, even buy somebody a cup of coffee that's right behind you. Do something for God's sake. Take care packages to the homeless. And, and, and listen, Justin and I can't be the only people that want to love our shut-ins here. We all need to do that better. Amen. Volunteer to, to drive meals to the elderly in the community. Then vulnerably share your story as a, a fellow traveler that was once beaten up yourself. Jimmy, you guys can come. I want to close today with just a couple of things. And I just want to talk to a couple of groups of people. The first is I want to talk to you who love Christ and you have a relationship with Christ. Because here's what I know that sometimes I struggle, and I wonder do you struggle. I, I, I'm going to confess that sometimes I'm so busy with my own agenda that I fail to notice people's needs. You ever been there? I mean, you ever just get so busy, you just can't even... You don't even have time or space to realize what other people are going through. There's something else sometimes I struggle with. I, I sometimes feel inadequate how to help people. And so therefore, I see something that might get so sticky. I don't know what to do, so it's best that I just bail out. Maybe it is that we oftentimes think too much about people's spiritual needs and really forget their physical or relational needs. Sometimes I struggle not being able to see beyond a person's sin or the way they're different from me. And I'm not really always there to tell them that I accept them right where they're at. I don't have to accept what they do, but I can accept them. Sometimes I come across as being judgmental and critical and condemning. I don't know if you're there with me, but that's where I sin. That's where I struggle a lot of times with people. And so... The Bible says everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So imagine Jesus standing before you, the only true teacher, the one who is love, the God of all comfort, the one who is humble and gentle. And imagine that he is inviting you and me this morning to become like him. To express his love in his life. And our calling is really to be fully trained in the life and love of Jesus, our teacher. I know I'm a long way from that. So maybe this morning you want to come to this altar. Maybe you just want to turn around there. Maybe you just want to pray and ask God, God, do this work in me. I really want to be a better neighbor. I really want to be a better person at loving people. And then there's this other group I'd like to talk to today. And that means you just don't know Christ. And can I just share with you, I don't want you to come to Jesus because I want you to just get your life right. I would pray that you've never really encountered a bunch of people who treat you like you're less than because you don't know Jesus. 
I pray that today you're hearing that when Justin prayed this morning and, and you're hearing me right now, I pray that you want to know this, that, that your heart is, these people want me to, to come to Christ because it's really love that we're inviting you into. We want you to know that there's a God who loves you that's passionately crazy about you and you can't get to him because you have sinned. You can't get to him because you are separated because you haven't turned to his love. You haven't turned to the fact that he would be willing to die for you on a cross and be buried and raised again to bring you into relationship with him because he loves you. God doesn't want to send anybody to hell. God doesn't want anybody to face his judgment. God loves you and says, hey, I want to love you. Just let me love you. Come to Jesus. That's what this is about. It's not about living holier there and better than. That, that happens as a byproduct. It is first the Spirit of God saying today, you are loved and you matter. God created you because he loved you and he wants to rescue you because he's loved you. And yes, there's, there's a lot of judgment coming if you don't get his love, but that's not what he wants to do. He wants to love you, so maybe today you would come and receive his love. So I'm going to pray. There'll be some men and women down here, and if you need to pray or talk to anybody about anything, we'll be here to receive you. I'll pray, and Jeremy will sing. Holy Spirit, sweep to and throw the owls that are in this church. And people are listening on the radio or those people are looking in online today. I pray that your Holy Spirit is just actively seeking and you're speaking and convicting and, and doing all those things that you do, Holy Spirit, to bring people to an awareness of who Jesus is. And I pray, God, you do your work today in Jesus' name.